Hi, everyone. Eric here. Very quickly before we get to our discussion today with Yacho Wang and Jim Warmington from Human Rights Watch, I want to make sure that you know about our daily China Africa email newsletter. Every day, we provide the most comprehensive digest of everything going on in the China Africa space. We're doing a lot of analysis on all the big issues of the day, from COVID 19 to debt relief and the aftermath of what happened in Guangzhou. But more importantly, we're also bringing you coverage of all those stories that have now been pushed aside. Things like agricultural issues, sustainability, wildlife conservation, and like what we're going to do in today's show, talking about sensitive issues like human rights. Try it out free for two weeks, see if you like it, and it's also half price for students and teachers. Just head over to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it is still too early to tell how things are going to play out in Africa in light of the COVID-19, both the health crisis and the economic crisis. But what we do know is that any economic recovery that happens anywhere in Africa is going to require power and a lot of power. In fact, this is one of the major shortcomings that people have been talking about for years, is that any economic renaissance in Africa, uh, particularly in places where they're trying to build an industrial base like Ethiopia and Kenya and even in South Africa, where you've been struggling with power, uh, electricity supply is one of the key concerns. And the fact that there just is not enough power, and this is part of the massive infrastructure deficit that we've been talking about for a long time, is, is really a critical concern. And the key issue that we're focusing on now in the COVID-19 crisis is where will the power generation come from? And where will the money come to build that? So, Kobus, I, it's one of those things where now we have to wonder, the Chinese have been very, very active in building power across the continent. It's been very controversial at times. So remember, uh, last year we talked about Lamu Island in Kenya, where China wanted to build a coal-powered uh, plant in, uh, in, in this UNESCO zone. Uh, this was an ICBC, the International Commercial Bank of China deal, where they were going to put uh, a significant portion of money. The Kenyans court took it down. We have some other instances and one which we're going to talk about today, balancing out the need of the power supply with the environmental impact and, of course, human rights and the human impact of electrification. Yes, because anytime you build this kind of large-scale electricity generation um, infrastructure, you need to decide what kind you're going to build and then you have to deal with the local community um, who you know who is at the moment living on the land that you're earmarking um, for something like solar this isn't such a massive problem um, among others because you know because there's you don't need to build one big central facility there's different options but with something like hydroelectricity it turns into a massive issue um, you're displacing thousands of people and destroying whole ways of life in the process. 
So this story has popped up on the radar in part because of a new Human Rights Watch report. We're leaving everything behind, the impact of Guinea's Suapiti Dam on displaced communities. Uh, it was published in April 2020, and it was written by Jim Warmington and Yacho Wong, who we are both thrilled to have on the show. Thank you both for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for having us. Well, before we get into our discussion, uh, Yacho and Jim, let me just kind of set up what is the Suapiti Dam and then we're going to get into kind of the controversy that you guys have written about in this really detailed, extensive report. Uh, according to your report, and I'm quoting from your own uh, summary here, it's a 450 megawatt hydroelectric dam that's expected to start operating sometime in September. Um, this is a really critical piece of infrastructure for Guinea because the government thinks or believes passionately that hydropower can significantly increase the supply of electricity in a country where really only a fraction of the people have access to reliable power. The problem, though, comes, and this is what we talked about in the beginning of our discussion, is that when you build hydroelectric plants, uh, it does result in large-scale displacement of people. And so far, they're talking about 16,000 people from 101 different villages and hamlets will have to be relocated. So far, 51 of those villages have already happened, and then the remaining will be done this year before the end of the uh, – before, before it launches. Now, when the dam in, and everybody's moved – off-site, they're going to flood 253 square kilometers of land. Uh, that includes an estimated 42 square kilometers of crops and about half a million uh, crop-bearing trees. So this that's a big impact. And that is the nature of hydroelectric dams. It needs a big dam in order to be able to do that. And that's the impact we're going to be talking about today. For our purposes on the conversation, in, you know, given that we focus on China, the dam is being built by the China International Water and Electric Corporation. We'll call it CWE from now on. Uh, that's a wholly owned subsidiary of the world's second largest dam builder, the state-owned China Three Gorges Corporation. Uh, and the Three Gorges is named after the Three Gorges Dam in the Yangtze River in Hubei province, which since 2012 or 2013 has been the largest supplier uh, the largest power station, actually, in terms of installed capacity. So the Chinese have a lot of experience in building these dams. Um, Yacho, let me start with you very quickly. Um, and by the way, you're joining us from New York, so there may be sirens that do come in the background of our conversation today. As tragic as that is, I just want to kind of let everybody know that that is the soundtrack of Manhattan, unfortunately, due to the um, tragedy of the COVID-19 crisis. So just bear with us in case a siren does come up during our discussion yeah, Joe, so why don't you just kind of set up this report and tell us a little bit about what are the key issues and what's China's role and CWE's role in all of it? I think there are several aspects of the issue. I think one big, as just you mentioned, you know, the, 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 you know, the massive displacement of people without uh, uh, sufficient consultation. I think the report mentions that, uh, you, know, are, you know, a lot of people, they were not sufficiently consulted with the issue and they were just displaced uh, and they uh, the negotiation was not transparent um, uh, people you know there are people who are the people were forced to be displaced or people uh, agreed to something that they didn't know that they were agreed to it so this is one uh, uh, the, the big issue uh, Jim do you want to follow up on that Sure. Yeah, I think as as Yachao said, um, the the issue with with the dam um, was not so much whether or not the electricity was needed, which was was absolutely the case in Guinea, 
Um, but the way in which the process for building the dam has happened and the impact that that's had on on the 16,000 people who've been moved. Um, these were people who were already extremely poor, um, living on about $1.18 a day, um, even before the displacement. And so the thing that was essential to their livelihoods and their way of life um, was the land that they've lived on. And obviously, as as Kobus and, and you have said, um, hydropower creates massive land loss. Um, and unless you have a very well thought out strategy to address that, and frankly, unless you're committed to addressing the impact on people, the risk is that you make people more vulnerable, more impoverished, um, and ultimately create a situation where they're reliant um, on a state that perhaps doesn't have the capacity to serve them. Um, and that's exactly what's happened here. You have so far yeah, thousands of people who've been moved um, on land with which certainly has new houses, but doesn't have any way of replacing the the livelihoods that they've lost. Jim, um, if you if you unpack uh, the 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 situation of their displacement a little bit more, um, who is being moved? Where are they being moved to? And who is really arranging that? Is that mostly the Ghanaian government, or is it all, is or is the Chinese company also involved? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So they were the dam itself is on a river called the Konkure River. Um, which is a, a river that basically flows from the the north east of Guinea down to the coast um, on the the southwest, um, and that river has had a, a few dams on before, but nothing on on this scale. Um, and so around the river, because the land around the river is very fertile, um, low lying, and and well irrigated, there are lots of settlements. Um, people who usually farm rice um, seasonally, but also have um, trees and, and crops that grow year round. Um, and so with the dam, um, because it's so much larger than the other dams that have been built in Guinea, um, you essentially stop that river and then the reservoir will gradually build back from there. Um, and so the villages are villages that are around the reservoir and around the, the river itself. Um, they're moving quite a long way because the reservoir is so large. Um, so there are a hundred villages, as Eric said, which are moving, and and they're moving to fifteen different sites that that the, they've chosen with the project. Um, although there's a fair amount of controversy about the suitability of some of those sites, um, and what's really interesting is that it is the Ghanaian government that is overseeing the resettlement. So they're the ones talking to community members. Um, they're the ones deciding on kind of key decisions about how land will be replaced and what facilities villages will have. Um, and it really is very much the Ghanaian government taking the lead on that. Um, but what's interesting is that the overall project itself is not like that. It's a much clearer partnership between CWE, the, the Chinese company, and the Ghanaian government, with, with the Ghanaian government owning 51% of the dam and CWE owning 49%. Um, and so I think one of the big things that has come out of our research is that CWE should have played a much larger role um, in ensuring that the resettlement respected the rights of, of local people um, and in making sure that the Ghanaian government had the expertise and the capacity to do this in a, in a rights-respecting way. Um, and that's really not what's happened because CWE has tried, I think, to kind of delegate and distance themselves from, from the resettlement and its impacts. And this was something that came up in your report quite a bit, the word should. And and let me just quote from the report as well. The Chinese government, the ultimate owner of China Three Gorges and the China Exim Bank, also has an obligation to ensure the businesses it controls and regulates respect and protect human rights. You just used the word should. There is an, a statement also that implies should. Uh, according to who? 
I mean, that's what you think, but I think the Chinese may say, well, we do it our way. There's no law. There's no covenant, as far as I know. I mean, there's some of the UN. Uh, I don't know if this falls under some of the UN declarations on human rights and whatnot. But is that not necessarily just a Western human rights group bringing their own value and moral structure to something that the Chinese say, well, development and infrastructure building in the long run bring more human rights? I just want to bring the devil's advocate to you. And I'd like to get both of your, your, your takes on that. Jim, you go first. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two elements to that for me. There's a, there's a practical element, and then there's the underlying um, kind of laws and, and values that underpin that. Um, in a practical sense, um, both in the mining sector, and we've also done a lot of work on Guinea's bauxite mining sector um, and for hydropower, these projects kind of depend on the, on the social contract between the communities that are being impacted and the government and the company that's involved. Um, so, for example, in Guinea's bauxite sector, you've had really massive growth, kind of un- incomprehensible growth, really, in, in, the, in the sector in the last five years. Um, that's similarly displaced communities, affected local water sources, um, raised some health concerns. Um, and in 2017, when that growth was really in, happening at an exponential rate, there was pretty widespread rioting in the region, um, which is called Bokeh, where most of the, the aluminum and bauxite mining is happening. Um, and those riots were extremely violent. I mean, they shut down mining for a week. Um, one of the generals from the Ghanaian government who responded described it as worse than the Liberian Civil War. Um, and obviously, if that social contract is broken in, in that way, then mining and hydropower projects simply can't continue. And, and so I think that since then, there's been a recognition both by the Ghanaian government and by the companies involved, be it Chinese or not Chinese, um, that the social contract and and how you work with communities has to be a part of, of these projects. Um, from a, a kind of legal and human rights sense, um, it, is, it isn't a, a Western construct. Um, there are certainly global principles like the UN guiding principles on, on business and human rights that make clear that, that companies themselves have an obligation to um, to respect the, the rights of communities that are affected by projects they're involved in. Um, but also, even more so now, and increasingly within some of the Chinese standards, um, CWE and, and China Three Gorges own sustainability standards. Um, they recognize how important resettlement is to these big projects and how important it is for those resettlements to be done in an appropriate way. Yak Chao? Uh, yes, um, I mean, Eric just mentioned that, uh, you know, the Chinese probably just say, you know, it's just the way we do things. But uh, China actually, I think, recently, because of, uh, you know, the many other uh, BI, the Belt and Road projects, uh, the, you know, this dam is a part of the BRI, the massive trillion dollar China, uh, China's infrastructure and uh, development projects around the world. So they are facing a lot of uh, criticisms in Africa, in South Asia, in, um, in other parts of the world uh, for the BRI projects. So in response to that criticism, Chinese government agencies have also underscored the need for BRI projects to respect uh, you know, responsible environmental and uh, social standards. Uh, in his uh, remark, President Xi Jinping in April in the BRI conference, he said that, you know, we are committed to supporting open, clean, and green development. Um, so I think, you know, China, uh, the, you know, itself is saying that we wanted to do better. So it's not just saying, you know, uh, that it's just a Western thing. Yeah, so following on on that point, um, what, what was the um, 
the like how how did the the kind of decision making around choosing a massive hydropower project you know kind of did was was that something that was really pushed by the government was it done was you know did did the idea come externally or did or was it kind of organically generated from from within um, um, Guinea? The reason I'm asking is this: obviously, China is a very big player in hydropower in Africa, but recently we've seen several hydropower um, projects. Uh, the the water levels falling so low because of drought that sometimes cities would run out of power. That happened in Zimbabwe recently. Um, so I was wondering, like, where the what was the calculus of the thinking in to choose hydropower rather than say solar or a different a different um, method of generation? Um, first of all, I think the decision making. Um in China, it's very opaque. You know, as outsiders, we don't know exactly. You know how they chose to fund certain projects and not other projects. But I think one bigger reason for a lot of BRI, the Belt Road Initiative projects, is to export overcapacity. So China has a lot of capacity in building dams. So you know, they have the uh, you know the manpower, the techniques, and the capabilities and knowledges. So they already have that. So, you know, that is a big reason why they are doing that uh, all over the world. Jim, in the report, you mentioned that you did try to reach out to CWE. Uh, what did they say when you brought these issues to their attention? Yeah, um, we did. We wrote to CWE and to China Exim Bank, um, expressing the concerns about the way in which the resettlement had happened and, and really asking for an explanation of their role in it and, and how they'd worked with the Ghanaian government. Um, we didn't hear back from China Exim Bank, but we did get a response from CWE, so the, the company building and, and co-owning the dam. Um, and what they said was that they really tried to, to kind of lay the responsibility for the Ghanaian government. Um, they said that they are participating, quote, um, in the resettlement um, and playing a role of overseeing it, but that the resettlement itself and, and the way in which communities are being moved and, and the way in which they're being compensated and those kinds of issues are really the responsibility of um, the Ghanaian government. Um, that was something that when we looked at other research about how um, other Belt and Road projects had been implemented and, and what Chinese companies had said when there were criticisms. It was something I think that other companies had, had said, which is that, um, yes, this is a project that we're involved in, um, but we can respect domestic law and we respect the role of, of the national government in, in implementing the project. Um, and I think it's really interesting for us because we've done a lot of work, um, if, for example, in Guinea in the, in the mining sector on projects that have World Bank funding. Um, and I think it's a really big contrast in that attitude and in that type of response to, to the types of, of responses you get from World Bank funded projects when there's immediate acceptance by both the bank that's funding the project and by the companies involved that whatever the role of the Ghanaian government, um, they bear a huge reputational cost of the project um, and they have to play a really active role in overseeing how projects are happening. Um, that doesn't always result in a better outcome for local people, um, but it certainly is a very different um, perspective and as a result, a very different way to manage a project. What would you have liked them to do? So if you're not satisfied with the answer of, well, we're deferring to the local government, this is what no strings attached actually looks like. A lot of African governments really like it, by the way, because they felt that the World Bank, the IMF, the Western donors, uh, US European donors have been too interventionist in the past. So what would you like to see from a, an organization like CWE? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, in answering that question, I think you have to talk about how CWE would conduct itself um, and similar Chinese companies across all of these types of, of projects. Um, because I think as I was talking to people in Guinea about what we'd like CWE to do and specifically for the Suapiti Dam, there's definitely a concern that if you bring in a company that doesn't have expertise in, in how to deal with some of the kind of human rights elements of, of these projects, you might make things worse. Um, but I think the bigger point is for all of these projects, CWE needs to develop both a set of standards that very clearly set out when they're involved in large-scale hydropower these are the standards that they're going to respect, um, standards in terms of how people are compensated, how consultation happens, how climate change impact assessments are happening, so that when CWE comes to a project, um, personnel within CWE, but also people on the outside, have a very clear sense of the standards that CWE is aspiring to and will meet um, in order to, to mitigate the impacts of these projects. Um, what that looks like concretely is that you, you really need um, staff and capacity that have experience and expertise in how to manage the environmental and social and human rights impacts of projects. Um, and so in some of the mining companies that I've worked with, for example, you, you have a whole dedicated team within the company who's fo focused on environmental and social footprint, um, who have many, many years of expertise in how to do that. Um, and it's those people who are tasked with really kind of transforming the values that the company has into improved outcomes for community members. Um, and it's really, really complicated work. It requires, you know, ex real experience in how to consult and communicate with communities um, in rural areas, um, and then also expertise in how to deliver land and, and assistance to them. So I think one of the problems that I would see is that even in a situation where CWE wants to do that, there's, there's going to be a lag and capacity gap that got, has to be addressed as the company really commits itself to, to that approach. And um, Yacho, what kind of response did you get from the Ghanaian government um, in in response to the the report? Jim, do you want to speak on that? I mean, yeah, Jim is more involved in that. Sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, the Ghanaian government was was very responsive, I should say, and and in in the work that we've done, both on mining and hydropower, um, both the companies involved and the government, I think, have been very willing to, to sort of respond to research, which I think makes the research much richer and, and more nuanced. Um, the government's perspective was basically that they were kind of trying their best on on addressing the impacts of the resettlement. Um, I think that there were several things that made, that it sort of explain why the rights of local people in this project have been neglected and, and why, for example, they haven't got land um, to replace the land that they've lost and, and why, therefore, their lives and livelihoods have been so affected. And I think the first thing is that this, politically, this is a very interesting and tricky moment in Guinea now, um, where the president, Alpha Conde, who has been in power since 2010, um, is trying to uh, run again in the 2020 elections. Um, that was something that was originally prohibited by the constitution. He has since amended the constitution in, in a very non-transparent way. Um, and with significant loss of, of life around the elections. Um, and so this dam is, is part of his effort to get re-elected. It's an effort to, to, develop, to deliver electricity and show the progress that the country is making. Um, and so it's had a very accelerated and, uh, timeline um, and I think a focus on kind of getting it done and getting the power out that I, I would think has, has created internal pressure to maybe move more quickly um, without addressing some of these impacts on local people. Um, the second thing is that many people in this area, I mean, the vast majority of people don't have legal rights to their land in a kind of formal legal sense. 
They have traditional rights um, that are based on on laws and values that have been in place for for decades and centuries, um, but aren't reflected in in how Ghanaian law recognises land rights. And, and so, in a, in a sense, they lack really strong legal protections. Um, and then the final thing is just simply, this is an enormous project for a country like Guinea to take on. Um, it's the largest resettlement in Guinea's history. Um, the disconnect between the kind of size and capacity of the government agencies involved in these kinds of projects um, and their impact is enormous. I mean, so for example, in the bauxite sector, a multi-billion dollar industry, the, the team that supervises and inspects mining companies is, you know, a few people who are very good, but without any of the, the equipment they need. And so there's just such a disconnect between national regulatory capacity and impacts. And I think that underscores, again, how important it is that the the Chinese banks or the Western banks and, and the companies involved in these projects get it right and don't just defer to national governments. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Yeah, Cho, let's kind of step back a little bit from Guinea and try to put the Suapiti Dam into a broader context of the Belt and Road and human rights globally. Uh, how do you think that this case here represents what's going on elsewhere around the world? And I have to be honest with you that when Jim said that human that CWA responded to a an inquiry from Human Rights Watch, I don't think that would have happened five or six years ago. I mean, uh, Human Rights Watch, like Amnesty, are four-letter words in most of the Chinese government. <laughs> so it does seem like there is change, but I'm just curious, where do you see what this report and what's going on in Guinea fitting in with the broader Belt and Road that you're studying as a China researcher at Human Rights Watch? When we got that letter, uh, it really surprised me because, you know, we wrote many China reports over the years and we sent many letters to the Chinese government, big Chinese state-owned ent- uh, companies, and we never re- uh, heard anything from them. That's just, you know, what we would expect. So that uh, getting a letter from them itself uh, is, uh, you know, uh, very surprising and and a positive thing. Um, I think, uh, you know, as I said, uh, the Chinese government has been facing criticism for the Belt Road Initiative projects, uh, uh, such as, uh, you know, lack of transparency, disregard of community concerns, and threats uh, of environmental degradation. So I think China, you know, there are a lot of uh, arguments why China is doing, uh, uh, you know, all these BRA projects like, you know, like a, uh, one big argument is that that trap, um, there are ulterior geopolitical reasons. But by talking to companies who are, you know, overseas doing all those projects, I do think, you know, they wanted to do something good. Uh, they want, uh, you know, their projects to be perceived as positive. Uh, so they are responding to that. They uh, you know, have uh, uh, guidelines, and they have, uh, and they're not laws. You know, we hope they are laws, but they they do have you know more guidelines in terms of directing uh, their projects to be more transparent, more green. I mean, that's come from, from the very top, uh, Xi Jinping. 
Jim, in in uh, the report, you um, you recommend that um, the displaced people um, their their rights to their land, the customary rights to their land, and um, their right to to get a, a free market based con- um, compensation for for their crops and so on should be respected. How much hope do you have that the Ghanaian government will actually respect those rights? I think in terms of the, the kind of pure legal sense of the land rights. Um, I think there's not a lot of hope um, because of, unfortunately, how problematic the legal framework is in that sense. So in terms of kind of whether farmer A will receive compensation to, to X amount, I think that's that's less likely. Um, and I think what is what will happen and is happening, which is somewhat promising, but unfortunately I think it's too late for Swapiti, um, is that these projects and the problems that they've had have created a conversation around land reform in Guinea and there's a coalition of civil society groups that we are aligned with kind of informally um, who are pushing for much stronger standards in how um, Guinea uh, acquires land from communities in the mining sector, in the hydro sector. Um, in terms of kind of the bigger picture as to whether the government will support communities in, in finding new ways of living, and, and that means intensifying farming on land that does remain um, and also finding other ways of earning a living, whether it's fishing, if the reservoir expands. I mean, I think that's where the the government, in response to our findings, has recommitted to doing that. Um, so, for example, in the plans for the dam, they were supposed to do that from when construction began in 2015 um, and basically didn't do any of that at all until now. Um, and they have a, a very large budget for doing that, you know, millions and millions of dollars um, that comes from China Exim Bank that basically hasn't been spent and so the resources are there, and, and one hopes the political will is there now. Um, one of the additional concerns beyond just the fact that these issues tend to kind of slide down agendas um, as time goes on is, of course, COVID-19, where it's going to be hard for the government to get to communities safely. And, and I think the communities themselves, um, without enough um, kind of local infrastructure, access to water, access to hygiene, are at real risk from from COVID-19. And and that's something that we've expressed to the government um, with some of the victims groups in the last few weeks. Um, I mean, one thing I'd say is just the research that we do is important, um, but I don't think it necessarily fundamentally changes the power dynamic between these rural communities that don't have um, a a lot of voices and and the the companies and governments themselves. And, And that power dynamic and the lack of accountability of government and companies is the right reason why these things happen. Jim, you also are looking at the bigger picture in Guinea and what the Chinese are doing in Guinea. Uh, From my understanding, and according to your report, there are two other hydroelectric projects in addition to the Suapiti Dam that are being built, one in Amaria and the other in Kukutamba. Uh, Could you talk to us a little bit about how those projects are proceeding and if there are similar issues or if they're being handled differently? Yeah, I mean, I think Guinea is, obviously, it's it's not a country that's probably well known to your listeners, um, but it's a real strategic importance in Africa. And I think globally, um, it, it has the world's largest suppliers of bauxite, um, which is the material that's used for aluminum, which is um, China is the world's biggest producer of aluminum, producing about 60%. Um, it also has this enormous iron ore deposit um, in the country's east, which has been completely undeveloped and is a, a massive potential deposit. Um, and then it's has enormous hydropower potential, as you mentioned in talking about Amaria and, and Kukutamba. Um, you know, enough it's it's hydropower essentially for West Africa and an enormous potential that that could fuel electricity provision throughout the the region. And, and there are certainly plans to do that. Um, and I think because of that potential, it's become of of strategic importance to China in the last five or six years. 
um, with massive growth from Chinese companies in the bauxite sector and, and as you say, this this expansion into hydro. Um, Cocotamba and Amaria, Amaria is slightly more advanced in terms of construction. Um, Cocotamba is still at the kind of planning and, and consultation phase and there hasn't been any, any ground broken yet. Um, but I think just maybe to, to touch on one of the points that Corbis made earlier, I mean, I think that for all of this hydropower construction across Africa and, and including in West Africa, um, which is not only Chinese driven, the, the World Bank and some of the big um, development banks, the African Development Bank, have been very supportive of interconnected electricity networks in West Africa and, and building the infrastructure for that to allow um, hydropower to be essentially exported once it starts producing electricity. Um, all of those have really significant climate change implications, um, both in terms of whether dams are sustainable as droughts increase, um, but also because of the climate footprint of dams themselves. And, and if you're going to knock down you know, half a million trees, as you said, and if those trees are then going to go into a reservoir and, and decompost and re release um, both vegetation and, and also the, the gases that come with that, um, that itself has a, a potentially negative climate impact. And so I think that what one hopes is that Guinea and, and the companies involved in these projects and some of the big funders involved in these projects are able to take a big picture view, um, both, of course, of the electricity and poverty needs of the countries involved, um, but also of the bigger climate impact. And I think that's one of the questions, again, with COVID-19. Um, to what degree is, is COVID-19 going to prioritize economic recovery over the environment and climate change? Um, and I think hydro in, in West Africa is one of the places that that kind of equation will be tested. Yeah, Cho, um, you mentioned, you know, obviously that these Similar projects are running right across the Belt and Road uh, zone. Um, what do you think it would take to set up uh, a set of Belt and Road standards for projects? You know, kind of like, it, it, do you foresee that it might be possible to work with Chinese companies and governments to set up a, a, a kind of a, you know, kind of a list of, of kind of working principles according to which these these projects should be implemented? I think, I mean, you know, just as said that uh, the, you know, the company that built the dam actually responded to us. So that's a very positive thing. I mean, uh, we have a more uh, critical image in China. So, you know, it, uh, we don't have a history of the Chinese government responding to us. But uh, uh, because of our, of our a lot of other work that criticized the government for, you know, censorship and uh, uh, their mass uh, jailing, jailing of uh, people in the camps in Xinjiang, for example. So they're not, we don't work with them actively, but there are organizations that, uh, uh, you know, the Chinese government are more responsible, uh, are more responsive to them. Um, uh, you know, we work with those organizations trying to influence the Chinese government on this issue. Um, I mean, the, the you know, the banks, the big state-owned banks, uh, the China Development Bank, um, uh, they uh, they have uh, some internal uh, 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 guidelines and uh, standards. Uh, I mean, it's all it's very opaque, so we don't know exactly what 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 are there. Um, but I think you know, given the Chinese government has been more responsive to the criticism, and we hope that uh, you know, uh, you know, we can. Uh, work with other organizations to influence how uh, they uh, proceed with other BRI projects in the future. And Kobus, just to add one thing to that, I mean, I think, I think one of the things that, that I've been reflecting on in, in this is kind of what these standards and these processes would mean for 
for kind of the offer that that Chinese companies are making and Chinese development banks are making to countries like Guinea. I mean, there's no doubt that that the fact that these projects have progressed really quickly, um, the fact that that they can say at least that they're developing electricity or or income from mining quickly is a big part of the attraction and and Guinea does desperately need employment and poverty reduction and it was just a coming out of Ebola in, in 2016 and so kind of as these standards one hopes as Yekchao exactly said like as these standards come online what to what extent does that affect the ability for these projects to go quickly uh, I mean if and if it doesn't then are they really standards because probably not because consultation takes time and and um, an effort, and and I think it's sort of one wonders whether as these standards move forward, they'll be diluted because of the impact on um, the way that projects are implemented. Jim, I'd like to close out our discussion trying to look ahead one year from now, and where we'll be. Presumably, the Suapiti Dam will have launched as it's supposed to kind of launch in uh, September 2020. I say supposedly only because. COVID-19 may actually throw a wrench in all of that, in part because a lot of Chinese state-owned company projects in Africa have been put on hold because they can't get materials, they can't get people. Uh, trade between China and Africa have been has been frozen or locked, and obviously there's a lot going on. But let's assume that it's going. Power is now running. Uh, what's your forecast for what things will look like a year from now? Yeah, I think the first question, I mean, about the power flowing is going to be to what extent that does the power actually benefit ordinary Ghanaians? Um, it's a similar question to what we've seen in the mining sector, where to what extent does mining revenue and, and employment benefit Ghanaians from the from the regions where mining is happening? Um, and because I think that's been the response to the government to any criticism from from Human Rights Watch, which is, you know, yes, okay, you're right, we've had problems with the resettlement, but this is a project of national importance. We desperately need the electricity. Um, so I'm sorry, but, you know, we had to prioritize that. Um, but in reality, if you look at Suapiti and you look at these big hydro projects, um, there's a few challenges in that regard. Um, the first is how are they going to pay for the electricity if it goes to ordinary people? Um, Ghanaians don't have a long history of, of having been asked to pay for electricity, both because of subsidies and because um, there's so much poverty that people have tended to kind of take electricity um, illegally and formally from the grid um, and then not be required to pay for it. Um, and so if Subiti is required to pay back this $1.175 billion loan to China Exim, then is the government going to ask this very um, impoverished population to, to pay for electricity? Um, and if it doesn't, then is that electricity in fact going, for example, to the mining industry um, or is it being exported to other countries in West Africa that have more ability to pay for it? Um, and so I think one of the questions to look for a, a year from now is, is how this dam is perceived by Ghanaians, um, whether they perceive it as having been um, something that does genuinely benefit their country or, or whether the costs, like the costs for displacement, um, have outweighed the benefits that people have had. Um, I think the second thing to look for in, in a year or so is, is transparency. Um, um, Guinea has also has this $20 billion deal with China um, for aluminum production. So aluminum production, in, or I should say bauxite extraction in exchange for, um, for infrastructure. Um, that deal is completely non-transparent. Ghanaians have no idea when that money is coming, for what terms, what interest, what it's going to be used for. Um, and similarly, in, in the case of these hydro projects, um, there's no transparency over the loan agreement itself, what the interest is that will be paid, um, when the money is going to be paid back, kind of what it comes from, and as I said, what the electricity is being used for. 
So I think another indication in a year from now um, of how Ghanaians perceive this project um, is whether there's more transparency about the arrangements between the companies involved and the funders involved and the Ghanaian government. Um, and then the final thing, of course, I'd say is that one hopes that in a year from now, the government has followed through on its promises to deliver um, more services, more land, more compensation to people who've been displaced by the project. Um, and one hopes that that's the case. Um, but as I say, I think the fear is that the power that companies and the government holds over these rural communities is such that um, unless groups like Human Rights Watch, but, but more importantly, some of the companies and banks involved really put pressure on the government, that, that that's something that may not happen. Um, but that's, I guess, what we hope to see a year from now. Well, let's pencil in a date on the calendar for next year at this time to have you both come back and we can follow up and see how everything is going with the Suapidi Dam. Uh, Jim Warmington is a senior researcher in the Africa Division of Human Rights Watch based in Washington, D.C. His colleague is Yacho Wang, who is a China researcher at Human Rights Watch based in New York. Together, they wrote the report, We're Leaving Everything Behind the Impact of Guinea's Suapiti Dam on Displaced Communities. It's an excellent read. Uh, it really does talk a lot about what's going on in Guinea, but also touches on some of the broader issues about sustainability in the China, Africa, and the Belt and Road infrastructure development space. Uh, Guinea is a country, as Jim pointed out, that we don't always focus too much on, but it is of enormous strategic importance given its bauxite, and now as an energy producer, in part because of what China is doing in not just one, but three hydroelectric dams that are being constructed. Uh, Yacho, let's start with you. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch? Um, check our website. Um, check, uh, check my Twitter. So, <laughs> What's your Twitter handle? It's uh, at uh, Y-A-Q-I-U. Y-A-Q-I-U. We'll put a link for that. And Jim, are you on Twitter? Yes, I'm at J Wormington. Um, my last name. Well, well, we'll put links to all of your Twitter feeds as well as the report. We want to thank you both for getting up very, very early for us, uh, East Coast time in the United States to join us on the show. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Eric. And thanks, Kobus. Kobus, had we done this show five years ago, and we've done human rights shows over the past few years, not enough. I agree, not enough. And we want to do more human rights. But had we done this show five years ago, uh, I think it would have sounded very, very different. The fact that CWE responded to Human Rights Watch is notable. I mean, it's it's huge. Uh, you know, I don't want to oversell it because at the end of the day, there are legitimate and real concerns about the impact of this project in Guinea. But I do see real change and progress on the side of the Chinese side. That being said, again, the continued problems that had we done the show five years ago, we would still be talking about the same thing. The lack of transparency, the off kind of putting of responsibility and accountability to the host government, basically saying, you know, it's not us, it's them. That only goes so far at the end of the day. And if China does, in fact, want to be the responsible stakeholder that it says it wants to be, it's going to have to eventually back off that. It's going to have to take some accountability for what its companies, its money, and its projects and the impact that they have on communities, uh, both for power creation for all forms of infrastructure. And again, they don't have the same type of expectations and standards that the international community does. But if they do want to be taken seriously, and it sounds like they do sometimes, then this is something that will have to change in the next five years. Yes, it's it's very encouraging to hear that the, the company was, was responsive um, and that it was possible for them to also work with 
with the Ghanaian government on on some of these issues. Um, obviously, you know the record on both side, both of those sides could still be greatly improved. Um, but it, it's already encouraging that there was some kind of responsiveness at least. I think the issue is. You know, the wider issue for me is um, obviously, as, as you mentioned, the, the no strings attached aspect of Chinese development um, is popular in China and it's also certainly popular in Africa. Um, so the, the question then becomes if the Chinese government and Chinese companies become more responsive to these, to these issues, um, to the issues of community environment and so on that lie outside the, the narrow parameters of the specific project and its funding, then it raises the question of a what that would look like. What what is a what is a Chinese version of best standards on on these on these issues? But then also what happens to the no strings? You know, like are we then are we calling for more strings? And will that then end up just just lumping the the Chinese with the World Bank and other people that the Africans are complaining about? Well, if it's done in collaboration with the host government, then it may not be construed as a string. So it's not necessarily, I think the string is implied that it's a top-down, you must do this. And those are the conditionalities oftentimes that come with World Bank, IMF, and traditional donor uh, programs, where they say you they attach political reforms, they attach governance, finance reforms, all these different things that, necess- that host governments don't necessarily want to do. The Chinese may take an approach where they agree behind closed doors what they're going to do, and then they come out collaboratively and say, okay, this is how we're going to do it. That might be the differentiation that they take on that. I, you know, it's hard to tell. What do you think COVID-19 is going to do to these kinds of projects? Um, I spoke with a banking source in Beijing today, and he shared with me that there's going to be quite a big pullback in Chinese funding. At least he forecasts this in the next year uh, because the need for financing at home is going to be enormous. The Chinese economy has taken a massive shock. They're going to keep more of their capital at home. What Ya Cho talked about in terms of the Belt and Road exporting excess capacity, it doesn't look like now there's excess capacity in a recessionary economy in China now. A lot of those state-owned enterprises may be directed to do development domestically and not internationally. What are you telling people in terms of the outlook for the next, say, 12 to 24 months in terms of these big infrastructure projects? I mean, I, you know, I, I need to hedge at the beginning that I'm not an infrastructure expert, but the, you know, kind of the, the, my, my instincts for this is that, is that probably in 12 to 24 months, we're probably going to see uh, a bunch of these projects slowing down. I would be surprised if, 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 the, if, a lot, if many projects of the size of this one get cancelled. I, I, I assume that they might simply be halted for a while, momentarily kind of slowed down. Um, at the same time, I, I can see, uh, you know, kind of a, a slump in new projects um, being agreed. Um, and as you say, a, a lessening of emphasis on um, on the kind of external movement of Chinese state-owned uh, corporations um, in favor of, of redeploying some of their, their resources at home. That said, I don't think that the Belt and Road itself will will kind of fall off the table. Um, and of course, the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, kind of is is part of this ongoing long term idea of move of, of interconnectivity, 
connecting everyone back to China and then at the same time moving Chinese experts, Chinese capital, Chinese um, uh, capability outwards. Um, I, my feeling is that both of those will keep going, but that they might slow down over the next two years um, as and kind of like pick up the pieces and then and then move on. But in the process, a whole bunch of projects might might fall through the cracks. Uh, what do you think? I think it's going to slow down quite a bit. I think the Chinese risk appetite for Africa has has gone down a lot. They don't. I just. I don't think they have the stomach for it anymore. I think when the debt relief packages go through, and they write off or reschedule massive amounts of Chinese debt in Africa, that's going to have domestic shockwaves back in Beijing. People are not going to be happy about that. Again, the amounts of money we're talking about in Africa about 145 billion dollars in total debt. Not a huge amount for a. 12 plus trillion dollar economy, but at the same time, it does make it more difficult to convince somebody inside the Exim Bank that Africa is a place for them to direct their money as opposed to other parts of the world that have a lower risk profile. Uh, so that's, I think, going to weigh into it. So we have to see a little bit on how the debt restructuring negotiations unfold over the next six to nine months as well, because that will tell us a little bit about how the Chinese look at the risk profile in Africa. So uh, very quickly before we go, a, a programming note, we're going to start kind of mixing up our podcasts a little bit to cover more sustainability issues, uh, things like BRI, human rights, things that are outside of the COVID-19 that have dominated our coverage for the past couple of months. There is just too much going on in the China-Africa relationship outside of COVID-19 that we want to make sure we're, we're not overlooking. If you want the China-Africa COVID-19 coverage, that is where our newsletter comes in because Cobus and I every single day are putting a really, really deep dive onto everything that's being said. We have a donation tracker, in fact, where every day we're tracking what donations are being made in what countries and whether they're corporate, whether they're philanthropic or government. Uh, this is something that a lot of our subscribers in the public policy space have been asking for. So we, we do that. That's where you get all of the detailed COVID-19 coverage on China, Africa. And we're going to mix up the podcast a little bit so that it has more of a variety of issues beyond just what's going on in terms of aid, Jack Ma, Guangzhou, and all these other issues that we've covered quite a bit over the past few months. And we will from time to time come back to them but we're also going to start diversifying the the mix of shows that we're going to do. So we would love to hear from you. What do you think? If you've got questions, comments, feedback, uh, we're easily accessible. Uh, Eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com and Cobus, C-O-B-U-S at ChinaAfricaProject.com. By the way, that's Eric with a C. Uh, email us. Tell us what you think. Do you like, disagree? Uh, with anything that we've said, we would love to hear from you and or just say hi. That's always nice as well. And of course, if you'd like to subscribe to our newsletter and become a subscriber to the China Africa Project to get access to our China Africa Experts Network, and then of course, all of the exclusive coverage that we do every day, uh, go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much. We have also a 50% discount for students and scholars. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>